Okay, next we have George Gibson, and George has worked in the area of construction engineering and inspection since 1969. He works for Mulkey Engineers. Uh, he served with the North Carolina Department of Transportation in various positions, such as resident engineer, state railway construction engineer, state contractual services engineer, and state pavement management engineer. So please welcome George. George will be speaking on temporary bridging. Brian. You hear me okay? Uh, back in uh, the fall of 2005, NCHRP uh, solicited uh, firms to uh, take on the topic of temporary bridging to avoid the impacts to waters and wetlands of the United States. And so Mulkey submitted a proposal at that time and was selected. And so over a period of the next uh, 18 months, uh, we worked on that, on that project. And so today what I want to do is is report on the results of, of that project. Early on, the, our team decided that it, both the environmental sciences and the engineering sciences, being civil engineering, need to be represented. And as you can see here, the, the team was pretty much evenly composed, about half of uh, biologists and half of us being civil engineers. We also recruited the Center for Transportation Research and the Environment to assist us in, in the project. And the Center for Transportation Research and Environment is a, a component of North Carolina State University uh, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, many of us, uh, particularly engineers, graduated from that facility. Uh, had it not been for the CTE or the Center for Transportation Research and Environment, uh, the project wouldn't have been the success that it turned out to be, primarily, primarily because uh, CTE uh, did all the literary research for us and then they, produ they actually produced uh, the final document. Our focus was basically to uh, uh, try to catalog the methods and materials that could be used to lessen impacts to the waters and wetlands while you're constructing a, a permanent facility. And as you'll see, we, we, we called it temporary bridging, but we also looked at some other techniques such as causeways, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. And, of course, the goal of the whole project was to provide uh, the various stakeholders that are involved in this type of activity, being it uh, federal, state, or private development personnel, with information that could lead to sound engineering, environmental, uh, uh, taking into consideration the environment, and also the cost considerations. Uh, when we developed our research approach, we developed or divided into two distinct phases. The first phase basically was the gathering of information. Uh, we conducted uh, a survey using, uh, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, uh, using the um, SurveyMonkey website. And then phase two, uh, we really got into the development of the guidebook based on the information that we had gathered in phase one. Uh, we also took into consideration uh, the various uh, laws and, and rules and regulatory requirements uh, listed here as a, a, a sample of some of those rules that we took into consideration uh, as we started developing the uh, guidebook and we started developing, looking at limitations of various techniques, etc. Uh, as I mentioned before, we did a survey of all 50 states. Uh, we which amounted to 107 stakeholders, including DOTs and other interested groups. 
We actually got, from the survey, we got uh, 34 respondents, which was a 32% feedback. And based on what people that do surveys tell me, that's a pretty good uh, return on the effort. The survey included uh, 77 questions, 42 of them being environmental and, and 35 of them engineering. Uh, after we looked at the data we got back from the survey, uh, we made follow-up calls to uh, seven participating states to get more impact. We also contacted some bridge manufacturers uh, and state DOT bridge engineers for additional information. And of course, the NCHRP panel, uh, which was uh, a panel that, of course, uh, varied uh, individuals that NCHRP had appointed for the review, uh, gave us guidance and comments on the results of the survey. And these are the states that responded. As you see, we got a pretty wide distribution across the country of states responding to the survey. Uh, one of the uh, uh, things that the panel charged us with, of course, was not to make it a regional survey. Uh, as you know, Mulkey is located in the southeastern part of the United States, and, and they wanted to make sure that our uh, we, the data that we gathered represented uh, interests uh, from all uh, as many states as possible. In fact, one of the panel members, uh, although they did not respond directly to the survey, but they provided impact, impact input later, was from the state of Alaska. Uh, so early on, uh, we came up with this list of what we called influential factors. And these are factors that we felt like you need to consider when you start looking at the whole area of temporary bridging. Um, bridge length. You know, if the bridge is short enough without getting into some of these real uh, massive type bridges and, and using very high technical concepts, we looked at bridge length being component because if it is short enough, we felt like you could do top-down construction. And you basically wouldn't even need to do a temporary bridge. Of course, the site environment uh, was a critical issue. Is it going to be wetland? Is it going to be open water? Or is it going to be a combination of both? How long is that temporary structure going to be in needed? Is it going to be for a year, less than a year? All these were uh, things that can, had to be taken into consideration. Access and right-of-way constraints. Permit considerations. Of course, anytime you're dealing with waters and wetlands, the United States, uh, based on those laws and regulations that I showed you previously, uh, permits uh, are required. And so one of the questions we tried to address is uh, what kind of permits would be involved, uh, whether or not the contractor may have to go and get a permit modification, uh, because in some states uh, we found out that the uh, agency may not get a permit for uh, the temporary solution because they don't know what the contractor is going to use. They just get the permit for the permanent solution. Uh, temporary bridging of wetlands for other operations, such as materials sites, access to material sites. And then we looked at the cost of the various alternatives, uh, as, in as much as most state agencies today, in today's market are really pressed for funds. They want to know what those cost alternatives are going to be. And so contractors bidding the work also are very interested in, of course, finding the uh, least costly alternative that's acceptable from an engineering and environmental viewpoint. Well, after we came up, after we gathered all this data, we started looking at what types of temporary bridging would be available. And initially, we had come up with a, a, the, the normal types like panel bridges, contractor design, floating structures, and causeways. But as we got into uh, 
our discussions with the NCHRP panel, they, they came forward with the railroad flat car units, which we were not familiar with, but apparently are used in California to some extent, and also uh, mats on the ground. And at this point, I'm going to actually get in and talk a little bit about each one of these techniques. Of course, panel bridges are basically, if people know of Acro and Bailey, of course, Bailey Bridge was developed uh, back during the Second World War as a means to cross rivers and uh, developed by uh, the Army Corps engineers. Uh, and so a Bailey Bridge was developed as a, a means of, of a bridge that could be hand-assembled and pushed forward across a, uh, a waterway or wetland. Uh, some of the impacts that we identified, of course, is that uh, they may require uh, uh, placement of equipment in the wetland to build an intermediate support if the bridge length is of such that cannot be uh, spanned in a single span. Uh, you could have a potential short-term uh, shading of uh, plant communities. The, of course, the big benefit is for, for nominal uh, size type of structure. They can be launched from one side and pushed all the way to the other side of, a, of the water course of the wetland. And it's low uh, capital cost for the contractor because these units are available for rent from uh, uh, agents or vendors such as Bailey Bridge or Acro Panel. Some of the limitations, of course, is component of material availability for because of having to, to go to these vendors. And, of course, the panel height can you know, impact the operation of cranes. These panel bridges uh, get their support from uh, panels that are located on each side of the floor. And the longer the uh, spans, the higher those panels have to be. And so uh, one of the considerations is, are they going to impact uh, the turning radius on a crane or other construction equipment? Uh, the next type was uh, contractor design. And basically, contractor design uh, was designated, or the term came from the fact that Basically, contractors can use the materials they have on hand and design a structure that will meet their needs for access across a wetland. Uh, basically, what you do is you take a small or basically take, for instance, uh, timber trusses or timber mats, place them on steel girders that are supported by steel pile bents, and you basically just advance this thing down by what I call top-down construction. Usually, the spans are fairly uh, short because the contractor is actually moving, working from the completed section and moving forward. Some of the uh, impacts, of course, be uh, uh, shading of the uh, ground underneath the uh, structure, which could cause uh, the loss of plant communities. However, there is a, a limited disturbance. Uh, basically, the only, the only thing that's disturbed is where you actually drive the piles. The real benefit, of course, is that the contractor can use the materials he has on hand He's not dependent on vendors, and it does have a minimization of environmental impacts in, in the fact that, the only, like I said, the only disturbance is where you actually drive a pile. However, some of the limitation or the major limitation is that typically you, we see these spans for these temporary structures being in the range of uh, maybe 30 to 60 feet because basic contractors having to reach out and place that thing forward. <coughs> The next uh, type of uh, temporary structure we're looking at was uh, floating structures and vessels. Here, of course, the, uh, we have to deal with the shading of aquatic vegetation 
And then also construction noise uh, could affect the uh, fish community that's living in that habitat, but for aquatic birds and animals. Of course, the big benefit of a floating structure is that you can move it along the length of your, your structure. So therefore, it allows work along the length of the new bridge. And of course, it's suitable for open water considerations where the depths can accommodate uh, barge drafts. Some of the limitations that were identified is that uh, the Coast Guard will not generally permit use of barges and construction in open waters that are tidally influenced. And when I first, uh, one of our uh, environmental people came up with this, and, and, and I checked it out, and I said, well, that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And they said, well, it's really when you got real shallow water conditions, because as the tide moves that barge up and down, it acts like a plunger, and uh, it affects, it starts, uh, the suction underneath that barge is affecting the underlying soil conditions in the there. The other thing that was a sort of strange to me when it came to light was that Coast Guard permit conditions require barges to be certified as free of invasive uh, species such as zebra mussels. Causeways, uh, at least in, in, in some states, we're aware of that causeways are not even permitted. But basically, we also found out from the panel that there are other states, uh, some of them in the southeast, that do allow the use of causeways under certain conditions. So one of the one of the caveats with the use of this thing, of course, is can you get it permitted? Uh, of course, the impacts are that it eliminates habitat uh, for both vegetation uh, and smaller animals. Of course, it affects the water quality, uh, even though you might place uh, uh, you know pipes, etc., under the causeway to allow the water to move back and forth across the area. The real benefit, of course, is the cost of materials. The construction materials are fairly inexpensive, being stone, fabric, earth. They're readily available, and it's a cost-effective and expeditious way to access a site. Like I said, the uh, limitations are, are the fact that the causeway does normally require a fairly stable platform. However, you can bridge that sometimes with fabric. But I think the biggest uh, limiting factor and also, one of the biggest impacts on cost consideration is the fact that causeways generally have to be totally removed. The area has to be restored, has to be regraded in order to uh, return the site to the original hydraulic patterns. As I mentioned early on uh, in the presentation, we weren't aware of the of railroad flat cars being used for temporary bridges. However, apparently, uh, one of the panel members from California brought that to our attention. And uh, so we got into it and looked at, at it from a standpoint of what are the uh, impacts, what are the benefits. Of course, uh, here again, with any temporary structure, you have the shading of vegetation underneath the structure and wetland disturbance due to pile driving. The benefits, of course, is it's expeditious. You've got a modular unit, you just set it in place. These things can be hooked end to end, side to side, and you can make any kind of configuration. However, the one big limitation factor is the shipping costs on these units. Uh, these components weigh about 550 to 600 pounds a foot. And so shipping costs can be excessive. I probably failed to mention that basically what we have here is a, a bridge that in its use in the railroad, of course, is supported by the wheels. But in this case, what you do is you take the wheel assemblies off the, off the flat car and you use them as a temporary bridge. 
The final area we looked at was mats on the ground. I think this has been used, particularly in wet areas. I know in eastern North Carolina we used them for years in supporting dragline operations and that type of thing. And so basically in this case you have big timber mats that the contractor lays out on the ground as a means of advancing his operation forward. A lot of times he advances these mats by pulling up the mats behind him and just keeps moving them forward, particularly with dragline work or some types of bridge work. Of course, here again we have damage to the native vegetation that have an impact on displacement on small animal life. It's probably the least costly and most time efficient. We did note that it's not suitable for areas that are under tidal influence. Of course, weak subsurface conditions can be problematic. And some regulatory agencies may require some type of mitigation after the use of these because of the impacts of soil compression. Well, we decided that initially what we tried to do was we were going to come up with a flow diagram of how do you go about making a decision as to what type of temporary structure you're going to use. And as we started working on that thing, there were too many decision points to come up with a simple flow diagram. So after talking with the NCHRP panel, we came up with what we call the decision matrix. And this matrix basically looked for each of those six types of temporary structures, looks at the various things that you need to consider, such as duration, subsurface soil considerations, wetland hydrology, and other considerations. And basically what we decided to do, we rated each one of those bridge types against all of these considerations. And so we came up with whether they're applicable, not applicable, or may or may not be applicable. And, of course, the may or may not be applicable, a lot of times that's going to be very site specific. However, in the case of causeways, it could be whether the regulatory agency will even allow you to do that. Because as I mentioned before, in some states they are permitted, in other states they're not permitted. One word of caution that we put in the guidebook was that you need to go back and read all the descriptions for each one of the bridge types, as I showed you before, before you just jump into this matrix to make sure that you understand what are all the limitations, what are the impacts, et cetera. In addition, at the request of the panel, we came up with this environmental sensitivity matrix. And here again, for each of the six types of temporary structures, we looked at its impacts on fish and wildlife, plant communities, hydrology, geomorphology, and cultural resources. And finally, at the request of the panel, we came up with what we call cost considerations matrix. And the way we came up with that, we had both engineers and environmental people on a scale of zero to three, zero being the least costly and three being the most costly, evaluate under each of these conditions for each of these bridge types. And so you can see here, we looked at the lease or rental cost, capital cost, mobilization and installation, maintenance cost, demobilization and deinstallation cost, and the site restoration cost. And basically, the relative cost factor is an average 
of the uh, six preceding uh, cost types. Of course, you see here that, uh, as, as I said before, mats on the ground has the, had the least relative cost factor, and the railroad uh, flat cars had the most costly cost factor. And, and primarily that's because of uh, shipping costs that really have a big impact on that operation. Well, our ultimate goal, of course, was to come up to the, with the guidebook. And the guidebook, as we submitted to the NCHRP, was about 70 pages in length. And we expect it to be uh, uh, published uh, very quickly. Uh, last time I talked to the NCHRP project manager for this, it was going through process review at that time, and that they expect it to be published any day now. So. And, of course, it would be available to the state highway agencies through the normal uh, process that NCHRP uses to distribute this information. Uh, the panel also requested that we come up with future considerations or future recommendations that we would make to NCHRP, and uh, these are those that we made to them that they need to maybe look at future work uh, that they would uh, sponsor for uh, continuing research. So with that, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to make this presentation to you, and uh, at the end of the thing, I'll be around for a few minutes to, if you have any questions.